A standard like Bitcoin distributes power to the individual. The state gets its power from printing money. So a state-managed economy can't outperform a free market over the long term. Jeff Booth, welcome to On The Margin. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to have you here because I feel like um, of all the people that we talk to on this show, you've got just such a cool balance between this really deep understanding of uh, the world of technology, but also you knit that in a really cool way with the world of macro and finance. Um, and I think your background really speaks to that. So maybe we could just start with a quick um, overview and background on, on who Jeff Booth is. <laughs> That, that, that's a big question. Who is anybody? And everybody yeah, wants to say the one. Yeah, people want to say the one label how they're defined, and it's impossible. Um, but but probably the easiest way. I, I, I'm a technology entrepreneur. Um, have been for over twenty years, and and more so. Um, I like I, I like looking at big problems and solving those problems with technology and providing. And and, and in other words providing value to a whole bunch of people through through the lens of technology um, and and that actually led to the book I wrote because kind of at a company level you can do that or at a kind of d different business level you can see things you can solve for people with technology but what I, what I realized in, um, is at a macro level the same thing was happening and that's what I wrote the book about yeah so you wrote this book, The Price of Tomorrow, and you picked a really, really big problem, I think, to address. So <laughs> you, picked a, you picked a that might, that might be an, Michael, that might be an understatement. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about what the book was focused on. What inspired you to write it? So so what inspired me to write it was my kids um, at, at the end of the day, but I would broadly to, to I saw what they were going to live through if something wasn't done to the entire financial kind of system that we live in today. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so all the technology companies that I'm a part of, you don't put technology into a business to make costs go up. Mm -hmm. You use technology to, to remove labor and make it drive more for less. Mm -hmm. And so it was happening all over the place. You could see it on your phone. You could see everything on your phone getting cheaper and cheaper. Uh, and, Yet we lived in a system that required prices to go up forever. Right. And, and it didn't make any sense to me. And so, so I wanted to explore that topic in a really deep way and connect the dots to what was happening because the rules have changed. And so, so we have this technology force now in our lives mm -hmm. and that technology force is driving efficiency and the efficiency gained produces deflation and that that is bumping up against a world which we've always lived in that which requires inflation to thrive mm -hmm. so when those two forces are, are, are hitting they um they can't they can't coexist um and and so or maybe can't coexist they can coexist if you drive all power to the state yeah, um, but uh, but they cannot coexist under any normal free market scenario, and so all the second order effects, all the derivatives of that, the wealth, uh, the wealth inequality, the the rise of populism, everything that you're seeing around the world today, is is pretty predictable second order effects of that that fight 
and it's really quite honestly, Michael, this is sound like hyperbole, but it's the fight of our lives. It's a really big deal. Yeah. You know, you did this interview with um, Max uh, Wythe over at Real Vision, um, I think back in 2018 or something. And uh, I, I went back and looked at a lot of the comments um, that, that, that came on and you, you were saying some very bold things at the time, but now uh, they, they really aged like a fine wine. Uh, my friend, I think you were ahead <laughs> on a lot of these trends. And a lot of the stuff that you were saying back then, we're starting to see more and more now. And I think you had this really great um, quote from, I think, John Maynard Keynes uh, in one of the first chapters of your book, that even the most pragmatic of men are slaves to uh, some economic paradigm or another. Um, and I think you highlighting kind of that our entire economic and monetary system is based on inflation, but you are fundamentally fighting with deflation that comes from technology, which is inevitable. Uh, and the tension that results there is leading to a lot of what we're seeing in our world today is just a profound, profound implication. Um, yeah. And, and, and I put up a tweet today, today, and it's funny that you used to say that. I get a kick out of this, but, but uh, so many people, when I put up the tweet back in time that, uh, that, uh, Elon Musk would be buying, buying Bitcoin by, mm. uh, by March. And I put that up in December and I went back and forth with Elon on a whole bunch of, of different things. And, and then so many people out of that or the book or a whole bunch of uh, people are commenting. I think Jeff Booth has a time machine. And, uh, and I find it uh, really humorous, but, uh, but, but, but really it, it's, it's understanding. It's just really understanding the game board yeah. and, and, and people use historical models to judge where we are today and they keep on doing it and they kind of, they want reference points to where we are, whether it's the roaring twenties or, um, whether, and, and a lot of those historical models, um, are missing how fast technology is moving. It yeah. looks very different to today than, than, than any is comparing AI to electricity. It's, it's, it's just two different, two totally different technologies. And, and so it's bound people are going to make mistakes. But if you, if you understand the game board, if you understand what we're actually playing with, you can actually see what's going to happen next and what's going to happen after that. And what's going to happen that after that, at least in a macro sense, you, sometimes you miss the day to day movements or the month, but in a macro sense, it's pretty obviously pretty obvious what's going to happen. Yeah. So let's just start with kind of that first premise, right? That technology drives deflation. Um, can you just describe a little bit, what is it about the technology today that's really advancing kind of deflationary forces it's, it's so that people want to look at this in a light switch moment so one day we we don't have it the next day we we have it or there's one technology it's all technologies so 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 but but behind that moore's law is uh is now uh, doubling of compute power every 18 months or even extend it to every two years or even extend it to every two and a half years if Moore's law sl slows. And at some point, Moore's law will stop um, and re be replaced by a different technology that feels like it's growing that way. But let's just use Moore's law for an, ex an example. Um, it's what ends up happening on exponential patterns like doubling of compute power every 18 months. Um, is you overestimate what it means in the beginning um, because you think, wow, this is going to be incredible. And there's this hype cycle of 
technology it looks like utopia or it looks like uh, like remember 3d printers uh five years ago and then somebody you can print and it prints a little uh, little plastic widget and then there's a there's an expectations that just people are confused and they, they over hype on expectations but what ends up happening is it keeps doubling and it keeps doubling and it keeps doubling and then on the back side just as much as people overestimated the growth they massively underestimate the growth and we're we're on on the now on the back side of that exponential and we're um we're massively underestimating what's next and we're and, and then again and then again as and as technology keeps moving and it does the point is it actually does remove labor and it gives us more for less mm -hmm. so if you look at the people don't buy cameras anymore because the camera on their phone is so incredible the lidar a, a lidar device that in 2000 i think 15 msnbc said lidar will never work on cars because it costs seventy thousand dollars or something like that to put the lidar device on a car and that's a five dollar bill of materials right now in mm -hmm. an iphone and so that's how that that's the that's how much how much more for less it's come down only in seven years in just one application so so what's happening is people are miss they think computer technology is an industry mm. and technology isn't an industry it's a base layer of everything we we're doing everything and or more and more and more and more things are moving onto that base layer and 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 as those things move onto the base layer we get exponentially more for less mm. so I guess the connection there, right, is that that abundance in, in one way is good, right? Because people are saving money, but one person's spending is another person's income. So as you have these um, productivity gains that result from deflation, you're also seeing falling incomes and wages, which you've seen across a lot of the developed world over the course of the last 10, 20, 30 years, right? And you brought up this really interesting point, which is this division between capital and labor and globalization is a really, really big part. And I think this big deflationary draft. So talk to us a little bit about those kind of ideas. How does that all relate to what you're saying? So again, that's a, a, a connecting the dots on that is a way more, way more complex than you just uh, uh, said. I'm trying so, to simplify it. Yeah, so, but, but what is ending up happening is um, as you print against that, so these are two completely different systems. Mm. One, if you allowed to happen, all prices would go down and they would keep falling and they would fall and they'd fall and they'd fall as labor would was removed from the market prices would fall uh by that amount um and and but we don't live in that system so when you say labor is going down it's going down in real terms it's not going down in 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 fiat terms right so so what what's happening is governments are printing against that to try to make prices go up and and asset prices are going up a bunch of other things are going up and people are people are losing wages because the asset prices are going up faster than their real wages so your the rent or, or the rent is going up faster the food prices are going faster than up than their real wages to try to stay in the old system because there's this belief that that we have to have the jobs and if so every politician will say we'll, we'll we will get more jobs 
will have more, more and more jobs, more and more jobs, more and more jobs. What they don't say is, we're going to get them by actually paying you less. Because inflation is wage deflation. It's the, same, it's the opposite side of the coin. So by, 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 by manipulating money to get more jobs, you're actually decreasing, and, and do it through inflation, you're actually decreasing wages. And that actually, if you think about it, can work for some time. It can, it can, it can slow down businesses taking away that labor because it costs less for that labor component. Um, but it won't stop it. So, so, so as 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 you do this more and more, uh, uh, essentially, and and if there's pricing pressure on wages, which it, in term in at some point inflation, you would expect there be pricing power on wages. What would a company do? Mm. You'd use technology to remove the highest cost labor as fast as you could. So, so again, it, they're two totally different systems, and the confusion is trying to measure outcomes. Of, we're living in one system, trying to think, or trying to measure all outcomes from this system, while a different system competes against it. Yeah, and for me, where a lot of this really clicked and kind of hit home is when you started to talk about inequality, because you got these two very opposing forces. You've got an economic system that needs growth and inflation to be successful and to survive. But on the other hand, you have these really powerful downdrafts, these deflationary downdrafts in the form of technology. And what you see intermediating there is the government that's trying to reconcile these two completely opposing, impossibly opposing forces. And that intervention that the government takes, you'd think that that's helping, but it's actually leading to a lot of the inequality that we see today. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And, and let's, let's use it in a really simple example. Uh, actually, you know, I'm going to back up first. One of the, one of the things that, that took my breath away when researching the book was I knew that this was, was, was happening or I felt that this was happening and nobody was putting their finger on it. Um, but if deflation was, if technology, technological deflation was moving as fast as I would have thought, then something on the other side of the ledger in the existing system mm. must be trying to stop that at a force that was equal. And so, so when I, so then I started researching and I realized, okay, there's $250 trillion of debt to run an $80 trillion global economy. Mm. And that sound that almost takes your breath away. Cause you think, okay, how fast do we have to grow to pay back that debt? And, um, and so, so, but, but maybe there's new economies and everything else that could, um, uh, that could get out of there. But what, but what the smoking gun was $185 trillion of the 250 trillion came in within the last 20 years. And which is predictable if you understand technology is exponentially going this way and something on the other side of the ledger has to stop it. So now let's now let's look at that into what you said in a really simple example. And so so first I'm sure people with uh, with housing haven't done the calculus and say, said how much uh, how much would my housing have gone up without 185 trillion dollars of stimulus over the last 20 years. Um and or can it go up again? without another 185 trillion or 300 trillion over the next 20 years. 
And the simple answer is it wouldn't. You wouldn't have housing run away in, in those prices. But now let's say, now let's look at that in what you said, the inequality. Let's imagine for a moment, you have 10 houses. Mm. I have two houses and, and a, a bunch of the population is renting and they're renting from you and me. When you produce that economic calculation and you inflate some assets, then all those prices go up. You get more of the gain. I have, because you have 10, I have two. And there's a whole bunch of people that we increase rents and that they have to pay, uh, pay more. So what, what government has done is essentially just pick the pocket of a whole bunch of people and given it to other people. And this, and, and, and that same thing applies to, to, to and, and so now just go up the ladder of the, of the 1%, 0.1% and everybody else who owns the most assets. And whether those assets are stocks or, or real estate or anything else, the formula is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. If you own more of the assets or the more of the stocks, you benefit unjustly from that printing. And you have inadvertently picked the pocket of a whole bunch of people that were penalized from that printing. And that's what inflation is. Yeah, it's an unlegislated tax, right? And exactly. exactly. You said this somewhere in your book, but I forget how you phrased it, but it's just such a great quote because I think a lot of people, this would resonate with a lot of people, that they just kind of look around today and they don't know what it is exactly. They can't put their finger on it, but they feel like something is wrong. And you can look at any number of things, right? You can look at markets soaring uh, in a pandemic, right? You can look at, you know, the top 100 wealthiest people in the world growing their, their uh, you know, net worth by 100% over the course of the last couple of months, you don't, you're not exactly sure what the system that's underpinning all of this is, but you can just feel that it's not right. Uh, and I think a lot of people feel like that. And for me, you know, if you look at, let's just say American politics, it's happening globally, but let's just look at American politics. And you look at a couple of recent things that have happened um, that don't look necessarily related, but I think are related. You look at things like this crusade against short sellers, right? Um, you look at kind of the GameStop stuff. Um, you look at the Capitol riot. And to me, these are all mirror reflections of one statistic, which is growing economic inequality. It is at the center, I think, of everything that's wrong with, with America right now. Yeah, it, so it's not just America, but it's glo globally. The geopolitical China versus U.S., the geopolitical. So, so, so what's happening globally is the exact same thing. And what people were looking at, and, and this, is why I, this is why I wrote the book, I could not believe people couldn't put their finger on what the root cause of all of it was. Yeah. They're talking about, okay, those rich people against the poor people. And then, well, we have to tax the rich more. We have to... Um, we have to do this. We have, and, and all of these components were tiny little parts of the system. Mm. And instead of looking at the root cause driving at all that, which we're talking about now, people are, we're talking about parts of the system and it, in parts of the system, it's impossible to fix. If just really simply, it just, if technology is moving as fast as we're, uh, it's moving and it is, that's a fact then and and it's not going to slow down that's a fact uh too so that is will, will produce deflation 
where it will produce efficiency and that efficiency will pr produce deflation. If you want a free market, then that free market, then there is no way that a free market and that technology moving today can coexist without prices coming down. And, and so anything, anything that doesn't allow a currency that doesn't allow that those natural benefits to flow to society through deflation is actually signaling that you want complete government control at some point now dig now scratch a little bit deeper on that and say why do people get confused about this topic and why do 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 a whole bunch of people vote for socialism or vote for for free money and and, and everything else and and imagine you're the person that can't can't pay your rents are going up your food prices are going up and you can't pay for anything else and a, a, a charming politician comes and says it's not your fault it's those people's fault over there um, and we're going to give you free money you probably vote for them and 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 so un, unknowingly uh, realizing that they're creating the same problem and they're actually divided and, and the only way to solve it is actually create more of a divide one, you know, something you just said there that reminded me of, again, something you wrote in your book, and it worried me when I read it, was this, uh, you know, first currency wars, then yeah. trade wars, then real wars. Yeah. I read that and I was like, oh man, we are two thirds of the way there, <laughs> you know, uh, not great. Um, can you describe a little bit about what that process is, why things tend to happen like that? Um. Yeah. So, so what is a cur first currency wars? Um, and so, so let's just use, um, I'll use China and U S but I'll, you, you know, in the book I've used a, a number of different ones, yeah. but, uh, but, but, but China pegs her one to U S trade trade. And if you, so if the U S prints and tries to devalue their currency to gain more jobs mm. to, to reduce their labor rate, to gain more jobs, then what will happen is China's currency moves up and would normally move up in price against that, mm. and they would lose jo those those jobs, and you'd have an equal equilibrium. Well, China, well, China pegs, they'll just print more to increase decrease their currency, and so you have a race to the bottom. All currencies trying to gain jobs um, in a system that that is that is moving faster and faster than anyone can keep up with so so now now that leads into how dare you manipulate your currency i'm the only one who can manipulate my currency <laughs> and it moves into uh trade restrictions and tariffs and everything else so okay we can't solve it with currency because currency is being manipulated all, all over the all over the board so let's let's solve it with trade uh, trade wars, and I'm going to put produce a uh, tariff on it to protect some of my industry. You do the same, and it escalates and it escalates. And on that escalation, at some point, you get into typically hot wars. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and you can when you see two thirds of the way there, you can see the rhetoric right now. You can see China China talking about Taiwan. You can see you can see the, the kind of what's happening. If you pay attention, kind of on the global signposts, mm -hmm. you can see this. It feels more and more like a tinderbox, not just inside countries, 
where inside countries you have giant parts of the population fighting with each other. And, and then on a macro scale on country against country, you see the same thing. It's all caused by manipulating money. So, you know, we talked a little bit before, you know, we got on here about this um, speech that uh, Sir James Goldsmith gave, uh, you know, he went on Charlie Rose, he was a, a very famous uh, corporate raider uh, back in the 80s. And he went on Charlie Rose in 1994. Uh, he basically surprised um, everyone by coming out against uh, the system of global free trade. And he basically went on to predict a lot of the problems that you are directly talking about right now. And if you look at the relationship in between the United States and China, you know, the debate that was going on when we were talking about globalization back in the 70s and 80s and 90s is that it would benefit everyone. And if you go back and listen to this segment, we'll actually link to this in the show notes so people can go back and listen to this. It's an unbelievable speech. You know, he's talking with this advisor from the World Economic Forum, and she's saying, well, you know, if we decrease barriers to global trade, that is going to increase exports coming out of the U.S., selling into other countries. And you're listening to this now just thinking, what were they thinking? You know, I mean, either this is, you know, really well-intentioned, but just completely wrong uh, schools of thought, or there's something a little darker going on here, right? And there's a couple different ways that you can divide up this conflict. You can divide it up across geopolitical lines, and you can pick kind of U.S. versus China, which is what's kind of seeming like it's happening right now. But really another way to look at this is that another way you could divide this conflict is between different classes of people. And the truth is that the elites, both in China, the US, other developed nations that, that profit from trade, they've done pretty well. And a lot of the, the lower class people, specifically, I guess, in the United States or more developed um, kind of purchasing focused nations, they haven't, haven't done very well, right? So. Yeah, and, and, and what I'd say is globally, you've lifted a whole bunch of people out of poverty. And supply chains, while they are centralized, or some of these have produced lower costs uh, and given us more for less. So global trade, it's not necessarily the thing that... Uh, and, and remember, he's talking about a different time before what was happening with technology today. Mm. So, But you add technology to the mix, and if you think... What, what, essentially, more and more of our world is being digitized. So as more and more of our world is becoming digitized, um, it, you're not buying things anymore. So, and, and you're buying the, and the, the digital scales infinitely, and it doesn't cost the same to reproduce. You don't need supply chains and everything else. So the consolidation of that digital signal or that dig, digitized good changes our abundance because it drives the price straight down. And, um, and it changes our, uh, so the bigger impact around the world to today is that, is that happening? And there's nothing that governments can do to be able to st stop that digitization because really, uh, so I, I spoke to the Canadian, Canadian parliament on this issue and it, the irony is we're speaking on zoom and I'm trying to convince a whole bunch of politicians about this and there isn't one job in Canada with, with Zoom, right? Yeah, the the government is using it for this, this without the realization that the technology is borderless, mm. and so and more and more of the economy is moving to that to that. And it, a really simple example for your listeners would be 
or your older listeners, is we used to buy records. Then we bought CDs or 8-tracks or CD, uh, uh, CDs. And you had a whole collection of all these things to listen to your one song. Mm. Now on ten, And you had to buy all those things. Now for $10 a month, you have unlimited music. Mm. It, it, more than you could ever imagine. So it's, it's opened up a whole bunch of creators that would have never got seen in the other, mo- in the, uh, the other thing. And it's there forever. So, um, but the same thing is happening. We used to take photos and we, there was a whole supply chain for photos and the costs and everything else. And you would only take a certain limited photo number of photos because you didn't have the money to change film over and over and over again, or the time. Mm -hmm. And now photos are free. And so, but that, that thing that we're talking about is happening in just about every industry. And so most of the deflation, most of the either either benefits of or repercussions that come with fighting that most of the deflation is in front of us. So how does this period of technological innovation and advancement differ from other previous periods of advancement? Like I think about something like the industrial revolution, say, right. Um, which also theoretically they had the birth of assembly lines and stuff like that. Um, and that should have improved. I, w- I would think that it would function in much of the same way. So why was there not more deflation back then? How, how is this period different from other periods? In- <laughs> so the, so the, uh, so the irony is that's where a lot of people are making, um, uh, mistakes by trying to simplify it down to a simple, this did happen in previous periods. And what happened is current currencies lost touch, right? And, and, and that you changed off the gold reserve and currencies fought with each other, which was the world war one, world war two, um, as, as essentially in that time, the electrification of society, but the industrial revolution as well, a whole bunch of people were thrown out of work and it created new industries that were big, bigger and more, more efficient. So more, more jobs were enabled by that. And, and a lot of people get stuck in going back a hundred years or 200 years and looking at these time periods and, and, and think about how long that transition was for society. And now think about what the speed of technology today, it's coming in one year cycles, five year cycles that everything is changing on every industry. And so, so you used to be able to, the world didn't move as fast as it, uh, as it does today. You used to be able to, information didn't travel. You used to be able to, to even, and even with that society had to go through wars and revolution and everything else to see your way through that transition in those cases. Today, it's moving at light speed compared to that. And it's not going to slow down. It's going to speed up. And so, so these transitions that you think about, like I think about my grandparents and what they would have seen with technology and it feeling big in their time frame or my parents' time frame, and, um, but it actually happening relatively slowly compared to what it looks like today, where you're having exponential changes, entire industries completely wiped out in a period of 10 years and new ones, new ones formed with way less labor. Look at the photography industry. Something right. that la- lasted for a hundred years and then gone, right? Or it, it looks to- to- totally different. Um, so, so that's what's happening today. The speed is something our brains can't keep up. It's uh, it's so hard to even comprehend the the, uh, the speed of which this is happening. Yeah, absolutely. 
When you're thinking about um, deflation in general, obviously technology, as we've been talking about, is, is a huge impact. Do you ever think about something like demographics or just the, you know, we've talked about debt as well, but do you ever think about demographics in, in terms of how that So they all contribute. Yeah. It's just, I, I have a hard time without, it's not a hard time. I, I like to talk about the thing that's the most important um, instead of all the things that confuse people. And so demographics is important. And if you look back in previous models, it was, it was one of the most important, mm -hmm. but what's happened. If you think about, um, that exponentially moving technology and I'll do it quickly. I've done it on too many podcasts, but if you fold a piece of paper, uh, uh, 50 times on itself, that piece of paper will be from, from here to the sun. And most people guess it's about two inches. And uh, I would have guessed, yeah, two inches. Or yeah, and, and and by the way, I don't say that to say I'm smarter or anything else. I'm what I'm saying is humanity, everybody misses that guess unless yeah. you calculate it out. Our, um, our brains they don't work. In they don't an work exponential way, right? It's they, they don't work that way, yeah. and that's the more important thing. Not the parlor trick of understanding that fifty folds reaches this uh, the sun. That's a that's a that's a gimmick. It's uh, the it, it's to understand what that means. If you have exponentially moving technology that is following that same trend, it's how why you misunderstand that. If you guess two inches or to the ceiling or to the moon, you're an order your orders of magnitude away from many orders of magnitude away from what it actually does. Mm -hmm. And so if you do that on that, then you're likely to do it everywhere in your life. And we have technology moving at that rate. So, so now we're on say fold 34 moving to 35. And so we're in the, the, the steep steps now and 30, 35 to 36, it's double that. So when, when we're projecting self-driving cars coming and thinking, wow, and within five years, you're going to have to self drive you're not projecting the next step or the next step after that. And what, what this looks like, it's staggering. It's just, it's so hard to comprehend. And if you miss that, so if you miss the paper folding, which we all miss, then you're just as liable to miss everything else in your life. But the pro because that's the rails we're dealing with in technology today. And it's all around us. It's uh, it is the base layer it is becoming the base layer of everything we do. And, uh, and I'm fortunate to be at the front seat of that. I see, I see this in tons of different companies. I, I see about 300 companies a year that ask me to be on boards or, or, or different things, but a kind of inter or investor in such. And so you develop a pattern recognition for what's, what's happening. But even, even in that, I'm often surprised at how fast something's moving. I can imagine. I think one of the best definitions of where it makes sense to apply AI is if you imagine you had endless interns, right? And, uh, it's not like, it's AI still struggles with solving really complex cognitive tasks. What they do do really well is just very basic kind of pattern recognition um, over and over and over. And, and there's obviously a lot of benefits that come with a technology like that. But you also got to think about now you don't, it's thousands of interns that you don't need, right? Or lower paying jobs. And on the one hand, there are certainly benefits that accrue to companies like Google um, or Facebook that can invest in that. But on the other hand, uh, if you think about what is the overall purpose of an economy, what are we all trying to do here, right? The economy should serve the people. And right now, 
it seems like we're losing more and more jobs all the time. Yeah, and 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 again, jobs is a bad framework. Mm. It, it, it's it's the old framework. Mm. Now I understand what I just said is going to scare people to death, but here's our two choices: build an economy for more and more jobs, and and it'll look very dystopian. Because the only way to do that is drive inflation to to try to gain more and more jobs that shouldn't be there anyways. So essentially, I'm going to pay people less through that inflation over and over so they're married to a job because prices keep going higher. And and so a whole bunch of people are in this mouse wheel trying to keep up to to a system that was created out of thin air just by manipulating money. So you have a whole bunch of people on mouse wheels trying to keep up, and they can't keep up. Also, they can tell themselves, or also they can, I hope I can save enough money so one day I can retire and not work as much. On the other side of that coin, if you just let technology do its job, technology is supposed to save you time. It's both, that's why every CEO uses technology. They don't put technology in a business to make prices go up. They do it to save time, to give you more for less. And same in your in your life, you use technology to save you time, give you more for less. If you allowed that to happen broadly in a free market, everybody would get more for less. You wouldn't have a concentration of wealth. It would, it, it would, a free market would solve those things as it, as it, as it, as it pushed out. It's the, it, 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 it's the fight against technology that is creating all the second order effects. So to sum up, you know, everything that we've just talked about so far, and then I kind of want to go on to what your solutions are. And specifically, I want to talk about Bitcoin and the role that that plays. Sure. Um, so, you know, what we've been talking about is the most maybe powerful kind of macro force right now is this huge deflationary force uh, that is a direct result of advancements in technology. At the same time, what we're seeing is we have an economic monetary system that is built on the need for inflation, right? We need people to spend more so that people's incomes grow up and that there's just growth overall. Those two forces are fundamentally opposed. And They're incompatible completely yeah. incompatible with one another. And the problem that we see is governments intervening, right, in trying to force the inflation. And the more that government gets involved, the more unfair the entire system becomes. And that government intervention is actually what's contributing to the income inequality the most, right? And, you know, one thing that you outlined in your book that I really liked was the more that government gets involved, the more that we're seeing the death of real capitalism, right? We're seeing this crony capitalism that looks like it, but isn't really traditional free market capitalism. Can you connect these ideas? How do we move forward from this, right? Because yeah, and and these are this, this is hard to move forward in, out of the existing system. Yeah. So so when, when you'll when you'll hear, we'll tax the rich more. Mm. If you taxed today, all profits on all companies, every company in the US at 100%. So they didn't make any money. If you taxed at 100%, you couldn't pay you couldn't pay the deficit last year. In one year. The, the deficit 6 months of this year so far is 1.7 trillion. 6 months. You there isn't enough taxes in the market to to 
to pay your way out of it. They're trying to pay their way out of it by creating inflation and making the currency worth less. And then that does what we talked about before. It creates a bigger and bigger problem. So there isn't, there isn't a way out of this jam that we're, we're in. But I, I often ask, what would you do? If you're Powell, if you're, if you're Biden, if you're, what would you do today? Cause, cause here's the hard uh, reality. Um, the, there is no money in the system. It's credit. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so you have this mountain of credit with, with everybody with an IOU, I owe you this, I owe you this, I owe you this all the way down to the sand with nothing backing it not gold backing it, nothing, nothing's backing it. It's just credit. So, so the IOU is based on trust. Okay. You have the money. I have the money back. That counterparty risk is all the way down. So, and, and, and in there's $130 trillion of negative real interest bonds today. So, so, so Think about what that's uh, saying. One hundred thirty trillion dollars, sovereign wealth funds. A, a lot of your, a lot of, a, a lot of who you think has money is putting your money in a uh, for your retirement into a bond that, on its best day, loses money. And we know it's not; it's going to be way worse than its best day. So that, but that's the risk-free rate of the world. And the risk-free rate of the world, and which is every other economic calculation, housing, everything else is on top of that risk-free rate. And it has high risk today, much higher risk than people realize. And so, but now if you allow deflation to happen, then, then what happens in the real terms of this is you can never pay it back because, because prices are going down, meaning the debt is climbing in, in real value which means it gets reset. If it gets reset, then, then every one of those economic calculations, the trust, I owe you this, I owe you this, I owe you this, keeps unwinding and keeps unwinding all the way to the ground. Every bank is on top of that system. Every financial institution, all governments are on top of that system. How do you keep the street lights on? How do you, that's the system today and everything is pinned to that system. Mm-hmm. So I know fully well why they, why, why we the, at all costs put my head in the sand and try to get out of this. The problem is by not recognizing what we're talking about, the, the technology is moving faster and the other way. You're not having really intelligent conversations about, okay, these are huge problems. Mm. You're having, you're having, um, it's always worked this way. So it has to work this way forever. Conversations you're having blockbuster adding candy aisles to their stores rather than understand that, uh, that, that technology is reducing the costs and allows Netflix to do a different job. And so, so that's, what's happening in the existing system. But I do totally understand why they're trying to stop deflation at all costs. And I don't know what you would do out of that system. Um, and then on the other side, and when I wrote the book, um, like I'd I'd already been in Bitcoin and and everything else, but I was actually seriously contemplating where else could this fit? Could you fix the existing system? Was there any way to fix the, uh, existing system and transition? Um, uh, what would that look like? 
And I've come to realize I don't think there ever, it's highly probable that there isn't another way. And so Bitcoin is a, is a forcing function um, to that other system. And I think, and I think if the Bitcoin happens at a slow enough pace, um, that, that it is the best way, um, for humanity to transition to a new system that is because, because technology moving today requires a currency that allows for deflation. So talk to talk in very specific terms. Why is Bitcoin's deflationary monetary policy? Why does that solve a lot of the problems that we're talking about? Um, concretely, because because it, it forces the free market to work. Governments don't control money any, any anymore. So even if they pegged to Bitcoin, it would still. So if governments still controlled money, but they pegged to Bitcoin, it would still drive what's happening and with technology into the most hands. Because if governments manipulated that by too far on their own currency, their own currencies would would fly into hyperinflation and then they would crash and they would go. But, uh, but Bitcoin specifically, because it doesn't allow for manipulation. And if you don't allow for manipulation, then the abundance gained from technology is most broadly distributed. Just in the free, and it allows the free market to work. Yeah. And I guess you know one of the points that we didn't really talk about was this inflation. You know, inflation doesn't happen evenly, right? There's CPI inflation, but really, and we haven't you know seen much of that. But really, where there has been a lot of inflation is inflation in the price of financial assets, and that's kind of the the actual mechanism, right? That's why there's such economic inequality, um, because a lot of people don't own investable assets, right? Um, and it's, it strikes me that Bitcoin, if, if your money uh, actually does kind of appreciate in a deflationary way, it's kind of a weird way to frame it, um, but that eliminates that one very crucial step of you needing to buy financial assets in order to protect your wealth, right? Because inflation really punishes savers. So it seems like a transition over to a, a monetary system that is based around Bitcoin is finally savers are rewarded again. Is that an accurate way of phrasing it? Yeah, that, that's an accurate way of uh, framing it. From a um, from a policy standpoint, you're you're right. So in, inflation is uh, so who wins, who loses in, in, in inflation, and savers lose, and and spenders debt provide, uh, win, mm. and so uh, and and it's the opposite on Bitcoin. And and, and a couple of thing a couple of things in here that are kind of probably worth noting right now people assume that uh that bitcoin um that that nobody will invest in an economy or businesses under a bitcoin standard and that's ludicrous so when you're when when you're looking for a rate of return on an investment i still make investments today it's just my bar is really high on those investments because they're competing against bitcoin and 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 so I think Bitcoin will outperform every other investment, save some technology companies with network effects, um, early stage technology companies that I'm investing in those founders because I think the rate of return will be way higher than even Bitcoin right right now. So even today, while I expect Bitcoin to go orders of magnitude higher, there's still investments that I would make today. Later on in Bitcoin, is it is it as it 
moves into a, a kind of a monetary phenomenon, and it, I believe currencies are either pegged to it or becomes uh, or becomes a Bitcoin standard. The rate of appreciation on Bitcoin won't; it, it'll slow. In other words, how much you'll make on holding Bitcoin will slow your, say, your interest rate, mm. and you'll make more investments in things to outperform that that rate. It doesn't change uh, that economic calculation at all, just like it didn't change change it in times of past where I we were taught to save our money, mm. save for a rainy day, um, save so you can. Uh, um, that doesn't it doesn't look like that at all, at all anymore the entire economic policy is spend everything you have and then some you know it, that's a generational thing my grandparents who were um, you know they lived through the great depression and they actually watched runs happen on banks they always said keep some amount of money in your mattress and right. my grandmother bless her soul keeps you know since since you know 1960 or 1970 you know, ten thousand um, dollars. You know, in her house in, in a mattress, and the value of that money is like twenty five percent of what it once was. Um, yeah. It just doesn't apply anymore. Yeah, and and but but that's what's happening in Bitcoin. People are putting their money into Bitcoin because because when you when you realize what's happening, every it, the two things that I uh, said: technology moving at the rate, everything will go down in price. Mm. Um, everything. Will go down mm -hmm. in price. You will see that happen if you use Bitcoin as a, your standard, as your mm -hmm. reference point. It's really hard when your reference point is fiat currency, and that there's manipulation. You're all the all. There's so many distortions in economic calculations because of those uh, d distortions. But in Bitcoin, all prices will come down. Yeah, I think you just brought up a really interesting point, just about cost of capital as well, which is one of the things that we haven't talked about, uh, a negative externality of the system of currency debasement is just a misallocation of capital, right? If your hurdle rate is zero, there, there was great anecdote, I can't remember where, what podcast I heard this on a long time ago, but there was this VC at a conference kind of bragging about, hey, well now our cost of capital is much lower, so we can make you know these types of investments that we couldn't have made before. And it's like, is that good? <laughs> Did you just brag about being able to make worse investments? Well, that, it, it, but that's the point. You just create more and more bubbles and more misallocated capital, right. and 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 now remember, the misallocated capital doesn't drive the real real economy. It's just more and more misallocated capital. So you need more to solve the problem you just created, and more and more forever to try to drive that inflation rate. So so, and this is an important point. I think of things that a lot of people get confused on mm -hmm. measuring CPI and measuring inflation in the economy. Um, Michael Saylor would say inflation's a vector, but here's a way of looking at looking at it. Why it's fooled um, monetary theory theorists, um, including Powell. Why why this is fooled is technology is driving deflation faster, and they're in they're pushing money into a hole. Mm. And the more money, so remember when TARP was seven hundred first three hundred fifty billion and then seven hundred billion, and so there's all the protests on Wall Street. The markets. Um, funny, Nouriel Roubini, who's totally against Bitcoin and everything else. I cannot believe he's against Bitcoin because the same guy said in uh, in two thousand eight, um, U.S. It's now USSA. So comparing USSR to US, USA, mm -hmm. and on seven hundred billion. So he said 
my 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 comrades and everything else and he did this whole talk on on how the USA and that was that was against 700 billion yet now we're talking about tens of trillions of dollars it's 12 years later and that's okay so but fast forward what it has to be another 5 years from now it's exponentially more yeah and it's exponentially um, because they're printing into a hole, uh, hole, but but again, if you're doing that and a lot of prices are still going down, you misunderstand that CPI is not a good measure anymore. Hmm. So you're measuring the wrong, wrong thing, and so it's now creating asset bubbles and misallocation of capital. By the way, all of that misallocation of capital. Do I think you're going to get into hyperinflation? No, I don't. Um, not until the currency breaks. Um, because, because, because you're going to have right now, you're going to have this second quarter. I think you're going to see some inflation expectations that go up and then rem remember it's not driving into the economy and, or re or in a long-term sense in the economy, because you need business formation and to drive inflation, you need expectations that's, that labor needs to demand higher and higher prices. But with technology going the other way, labor can't demand higher and higher prices because technology will remove the jobs. So, and then what will happen is I need, I'm going to need more money to be able to solve that problem. And it's creating a bigger problem all the time. So, so I would just take it as this, a lot of the money being printed is misallocated and creates more deflationary pressure on the back side of it. At some sort of rate, at some sort of crazy rate, not just monetary easing, but fiscal policy, if you essentially government said, I'm going to create inflation no matter what, helicopter drops some money and and, uh, and and I'm going to do solar across the, and I'm going to, I'm going to make every industry. Mm. Yes, you could create inflation by, uh, by, by driving a, a big fiscal response. Mm. But as soon as you removed it, it, uh, that that injection is gone mm. and now the economy has to stand on its own and it can't so what, jeff where do you think mmt fits in here do you subscribe to that kind of ray dalio framework where it, it first it kind of starts with monetary then it moves to fiscal and then kind of the next logical and probably last uh you know version of that is some form of ubi or mmt or basically just the government printing money and handing it to the people. How does that fit yeah. into all this? So it's, it's definitely a, what, what uh, so I wrote a medium article called the greatest game mm -hmm. and people should look it up. I don't know if you've, you've seen it, but it lays out all what's happening and what will happen. MMT is for sure in, uh, I wish this wasn't the case, but it's mm -hmm. coming. Um, and I go back to the first first principles. People get confused about all of these different things. But if you just said technology is is moving at the rate it's moving, technology is deflationary. Mm. Um, then, then if you try to stop that, no matter how you try to stop that, you're going to concentrate more and more pow power in the hands of the state. Mm. And it's on it, and it keeps on concentrating until you don't have a free market anymore and you get into totalitarian dictatorships. He who controls the money controls everything else. And so unfortunately, um, that's where we are. And MMT is a path to that, 
they're two di again two different systems. But yes, MMT is uh, is very highly likely on on the roadmap where we are right now. And then you know, kind of final question here for you before we can. I know we're drawing near the end of our time, um, but how do you see? You know, there's kind of a game theory perspective here as well about Bitcoin represents this new monetary system. It's very distinct and separate from other monetary systems um, that other kind of uh, countries have set up, right? And you saw recently maybe Peter Thiel call Bitcoin and the euro, which was left out, but he kind of called Bitcoin a potential uh, Chinese financial weapon against the United States. H how do you see, you know, if a Bitcoin monetary system is the future, how do you see other countries adopting it and, and who does it benefit? So, so number one, I think, I think um, Peter Thiel unfortunately said that in, and it was misconstrued. I think he was trying to put pressure on the U.S. government to take a hard look at getting into Bitcoin earlier. And so I don't see Bitcoin as being a financial weapon against, uh, so the, the uh, Chinese would use at all. And I'll tell you why. Uh, and it's really important. Bitcoin, a standard like Bitcoin, distributes power to the individual. It puts the individual in control instead of the state. The state gets its power from printing money and fooling a whole bunch of people that they can create an economy and they punish some people. And, and so a state-managed economy, look at the USSR or look at China, can't perform a free, or can't uh, outperform a free market over the long term, because you're you're essentially saying, here's a couple people with decision-making authority over everybody, and you get more and more people wanting to be into that club, because they get more money from being in the uh, in the club. So the state gets bigger and uh, bigger and bigger, and that's how you gain control, instead of free of a free market where you distribute all of the knowledge. To a whole bunch of people trying to create business, and and remember, any business, and any business in a free in a free market is it's only successful if it creates value for you. So that's what an entrepreneur is up against. I don't my business doesn't win unless I create value for a whole bunch of people, and uh, and and I'm up against competition, and the free market is brutal with that competition, and so it's a, it's a fight to try to create more value. If, if those rules are followed, that more value, because of the fight, gets distributed broadly. It's only when you concentrate, when you take that removal out, and you concentrate it in a, whole, in a couple people or a number of people that decide for everybody else who gets what, that you, you get in these totalitarian states or authoritarian states. And they gain their control very differently. China's digital one, where they're going, what the control looks like in that looks very different than what we, in, at least in the West, have experienced grow, uh, uh, growing up. But that's what it could look like everywhere mm. without a Bitcoin system. Um, so, so that is the fight of our time, right? With, with, but, but if you just go back to what you asked, um, there's no way that the uh, Chinese government is going to enable Bitcoin because it removes their power. Mm. It's quite the opposite. It's what, why the U.S. should, because because the U.S. The U.S. Is, was founded. Now, I realize it might look different today, 
but but the U.S. was uh, founded on individual rights and freedoms, and Bitcoin is the perfect <laughs> currency or monetary standard to allow that to happen, not just in the U.S. but globally. Do you think that because one of the things that opponents of Bitcoin or, or critics, um, I guess skeptics, say is that okay, I understand all that, right? Fundamentally, almost from an ideological perspective, uh, America and Bitcoin seem more aligned than certainly a country like China that doesn't want to open their capital account, they're not transparent at all, very command and control uh, sort of economy. But at the same time, the U.S. does exact an enormous amount of benefits and privilege from being the issuer of the global reserve currency today. And you see that in the form of cheap debt, essentially, from international creditors. Uh, there's this persistent structural bid for U.S. dollars. Um, and also, there's a very powerful political tool in the form of sanctions. So, you know, what are your thoughts there? Because I've got an opinion on this, but I'm curious what you what you think. It's true. Um, all, 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 so, the, so the U.S. by, you know, first going off the gold reserve, first tying their the currency, the gold reserve, then going off the gold reserve and pushing their pain to France and, and other countries because they couldn't pay their debts after 71. And then controlling oil through the petrodollar system, um, tying the U.S. dollar to, to all, all all currency, all trade in oil had to be done in U.S. currencies. Made the U.S. currency the global uh, global standard, and there was a massive advantage to that for U.S. and U.S. citizens. Now, but everybody, other countries know that game. China knows that game, and China is using that game against the U.S. right now. So, so the more the U.S. prints and does this, the more the China prints and builds uh, builds warships and everything else to create a different a different game. That's what's happening right now, and there's no way out of this. Like it's going to keep accelerating, and and so so the rules are different in a world that's moving to uh, to technology, and there. It, I can't imagine. Can you imagine any country saying, "I'm going to trust somebody else's currency unilaterally anymore"? It's not. It's not going to happen. Or a basket. Or a basket of currencies, um, because essentially what you've had is for the last lo long time is country. Every country will manipulate, mm -hmm. and so Bitcoin stops that manipulation and brings a more just, uh, a more fair. Um, uh, kind of world view across now uh, and this isn't going to happen tomorrow this is going to, there's a whole bunch of on ramps on <laughs> off ramps that need to be built economic system that needs to be built to it but but I do believe that if the US uh, and I think it's happening it's happening really fast encourages bitcoin mm. um, and uh, then then and and who goes first into buying Bitcoin as, as, as far as a nation state, they'll have a better, a better economic advantage to it. But it won't look the same. It won't look the same as it has. The entire system will not look the same as it has over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. So looking out into the future, Jeff, are you, how are you feeling? Are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling hopeful? Are you feeling pessimistic? What do you think we need to do to move in the right direction? Um, so I'm going to detach this right now from kind of what I feel because sometimes when I see the entire system, mm. 
yeah, uh, I'm feeling pessimistic. I'm feeling really optimistic for a whole bunch of people uh, in the Bitcoin community and how smart, how creative that is. And, 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 um, uh, and ideally, um, that change kind of imposing itself on a, on a new world order over time. Um, but, uh, but I'm, I, I feel optimistic on, uh, on, on that. It would be hard to say at, on these transitions of systems, these transitions between this uh, system that we've known all our, our lives to a new system, they're painful for human humanity. They're painful yeah. for society. And so it would be hard to say, um, uh, that that's hopeful. The most hopeful is why I, and why I go back to Bitcoin. The most hopeful is more people collect it sooner before governments uh, get on board before major corp major corporations are getting on board right now but a whole bunch of individuals more individuals hold it um and that uh um and so the the more broadly the distributed that is the better um and uh and so uh, but it is not we're going through we're going through a phase transition um in in how uh, how humanity is going to be on the other side uh, of this and, and, and system changes are rarely pleasant. Yeah. So now if I abstract that to say, how is, how is it going for me? How is it going for my family and everything else? It couldn't be better. Um, you're, you're like, you're invested in the right things. I get to spend the time that I want to with, uh, uh, uh with, my friends, family, every, every, everything else. So it just, it, it feels really good on that, on that front. Just if I compare the system and what people are going to go through, um, I, I, I can't say I'm really excited about that. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully it's, um, not one of the, the worst transitions that we've seen in history, but I agree. It does feel like change is coming. Um, Jeff, thank well, you so well, much. So just before cha this change, uh, this change, Michael, before, uh, before something like Bitcoin was always reset through war always. Yeah. And, uh, and my hope is we don't have, it doesn't have to be reset through and, and kind of the winner of the war, um, reset the currency on the, on, 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 and, and effectively said, trust us this time. We won't, we won't, we won't abuse it and always abuse and, and always yeah, ended up yeah. using it, right? Trust yeah. us this time. Yeah. And so, so, um, that's what I don't want us to go through. That's what I, I'm scared that we will go, uh, go through, but Bitcoin provides the best hope for not going through that. And you know what, on, on, to end on a truly optimistic note, if you look at something like America, right, to draw a bit of a stretch comparison here, but the reason why America as a country was exciting is it was a big step forward in governance. There was a there was a peaceful transition of power between political parties. That was a huge. We take it for granted uh, now, but that was the big innovation that um, that America was built on. Um, and if you look at something like uh, Bitcoin, um, it's a big innovation in terms of governance, just from a money standpoint. So really, on, on a really hopeful way, you know, we've talked on the show before about how Bitcoin is politically neutral, but it does have the ability to be a big step forward in terms of governance and maybe uh maybe this time is wow famous last words i'm about to say but maybe this time is different. <laughs> maybe this time is different. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what you're supposed to say um 
Awesome, Jeff, this has been great. If people want to figure out more about you, read The Price of Tomorrow, follow your thoughts, what are the best ways to do all that? Uh, it, probably Twitter is the best place to find me, just at Jeff Booth on Twitter. Cool, all right. Definitely follow uh, Mr. Jeff Booth. This has been a ton of fun for me. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We'll have to do it again soon. You bet. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff.